0: Um, hi so as you're listening to this episode you may be wondering why my audio sounds so bad and it's because i forgot to check the settings and i accidentally recorded it through my earbud microphone instead of through my actual microphone so sorry about that this is just a one-time fluke and it won't happen again all right thanks for listening enjoy the episode All right. Welcome back to my little Tony's. Hello. So this year, we're doing we're going back to another season without a Tony ceremony. We're only covering two shows this episode, which is going to be a little bit easier for us after a couple of marathon episodes. The 1963 Tony Awards, which were the 17th annual Tony Awards, and they took place on April 28th, 1963, in the Hotel Americana Imperial Ballroom. This was one of those years that was broadcast on local television, WWOR TV in New York City, um, but it was not broadcast nationally yet. And the MCs were Abe Burroughs and Robert Morse because the previous year was How to Succeed Mania.
1: Yeah, and it actually is interesting because I um, was looking and found the 1960 Tonys that were published, and I think to reiterate something that we've said a lot before, like, these early Tonys that were on, like, local television don't have, like, there's not a lot of razzle dazzle to it, surprisingly.
0: And there's a little news item about them, and they really started as, like, a fundraiser for the American Theatre Wing. The 17th annual Antoinette Perry Tony Awards Dinner Dance will be held in the (laughs) Imperial Ballroom of the Americana Hotel on April 28th. Mrs. George N. Richard, Helen Mankin, president of the American Theatre Wing, has announced plans for the event. The Fed will help finance the free performances given in public schools and hospitals by students at the Wing. It also will help the Wing continue its theatre rehabilitation therapy in hospitals, educational plays for social service organizations, and provision of scholarships for needy, talented students. So... It made me. I couldn't help but wonder: is, it, is the current Tony still? It must still be a fundraising uh, event for the American Theater Wing.
1: Well, it must be. I because mean, one...
0: tickets are so expensive. Exactly. They make the shows mm-hmm. pay to perform.
1: You know, in the middle of it, they have like a little spiel about everything that the American Theater Wing does.
0: Yeah, I guess I always thought it was more like raising awareness, but I guess it probably is physically funneling money into the American Theater Wing. So, you know, it's just interesting how this thing that starts as such, like, a little dinner dance has evolved into this real dog and pony show that we uh, that we now see today.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also funny because I think that looking at, like, old news items about so many of these shows, especially, you know, in the 50s and 60s, it seems like every show kind of, even an unsuccessful show, would do, like, a bunch of, like, charity performances. It's cool. I think that that is still, there's still, like, a element of that in... Broadway today.
0: Yeah, for sure. Like I think you see a lot of like, you know, Hamilton setting aside tickets for students to come or like even Alanis said buying all those tickets for Jane Eyre so kids could come see it. So the best musical winner, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which had eight nominations and took home six Tonys. Then Little Me, which had 10 nominations and won one. Oliver, which had 10 nominations and won three. And Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, which had five nominations and one win. So this Mm -hmm. episode, we're going to talk, these shows actually group very nicely with each other. So we have the two kind of big comic farces, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and Little Me. And then we have like the two David Merrick produced British imports, Oliver and Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, um, which we're going to do next week, along with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Something that I thought was interesting is that, generally, for most of the Tonys, the Best Play and the Best Musical Tonys have been awarded to the producers, but for three years, they also did a Best Producer category in plays and musicals from 1962 to 1965, but generally, and this year is no exception, generally the winners of Best Play and Best Musical also would win the Best Producing Tony, so they were just kind of like double dipping,
1: um, which
0: I assume is why they got rid of the category, so... That's a little uh, a little footnote there, forgotten categories.
1: Yeah, that is weird. Well, and you know, I think it is sort of funny that looking at who was nominated for best producer of a musical this year, you have Harold Prince, Cy Fuhrer, and Ernest Martin, and David Merrick and Donald Elbury who I believe was the British importer who was the Oliver's envoy over the Atlantic Ocean. In this era, there are, like, these larger-than-life, like, theater producer personalities that no longer exist.
0: Yeah, Um, I mean, that's kind of what we were talking about in our producers episode.
1: And the last kind of, like, funny little tidbit that I found, because, you know, all four of these Best Musical nominees were pretty successful considering the highest price ticket for any shows this season was $9.90, and it was still to see The Sound of Music nearing the end of its three-year run. Adjusted for inflation, um, the $9.90 ticket price would be only $83.86 today. Wow. Makes you think.
0: I know. Thanks producers. (laughs) I mean, if they didn't do it, someone else would have.
1: Yeah, no, totally.
0: So the big winner of the night was A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which opened May 8th, 1962, closed August 29th, 1964, after 964 performances. The book was by Burt Shevalov and Larry Gelbart, music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim directed by George Abbott, choreographed by Jack Cole, and uncredited staging and choreography by Jerome Robbins. It was based on the plays of Plautus, who was a Roman playwright of the old Latin period who lived circa 254 to 184 BC, and his comedies are the earliest Latin literary works to have survived in their entirety. So the synopsis is, the musical tells the body story of a slave named Sutilis and his attempts to win his freedom by helping his young master woo the girl next door. The plot displays many classic elements of farce, including puns, the slamming of doors, cases of mistaken identity, frequently involving characters disguising themselves as one another, and satirical comments on social class. The title derives from a line often used by vaudeville comedians to begin a story, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Theater.
1: That description, I think, really does a good job (laughs) of (laughs) bringing together everything. I think that the the one element of that description that feels like it's missing is that and i think that this is true to the discussion of the show is that you have all these like crazy elements kind of working together and then you also have like the person who would become the most influential and arguably most important person writing for the American musical theater writing the score for this right
0: that's really <laughs> the hidden the hidden narrative and all of this so a little more about Plautus is that so he was a big influence on Shakespeare and Moliere arguably the biggest influence on Shakespeare and I think his big legacy is that he Really loved to use stock characters and archetypes. Um, and his main archetypes that he used, which all appear in this, are the crafty slave, the horny old man, and like the self involved soldier. So I guess the motivation behind this was to kind of combine this really old fashioned, extremely classical theater style with like burlesque style humor. But going back to, you know, sugar babies burlesque, not gypsy burlesque, like Uh the kind of low comedy in art isn't easy. They call it a combination of Roman convention and American invention, which I thought was a nice way to put it.
1: In uh, Our Musicals Ourselves, the social history of the American musical theater, when talking about... George M. Cohen shows, the author of this book is kind of making the same point that like in this thing that like became like indicative of the American musical, you know, there is a lot of Plautus and like Cohen was using these classic Greek and Roman texts to kind of like fuel his like invention of like the Broadway book musical. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that like a common theme running through them getting the show off the ground was that like nobody really understood what they were trying to to do. There was a lot of trouble getting it started where it was like they wanted Jerome Robbins to direct and then David Merrick came on board and Jerome Robbins had such a bad time working with him on Gypsy, I think, that he was like, I don't want to do it. And so then they all got their money together and like bought it back from David Merrick. And then Jerome Robbins was like, okay, I'll do it. And then he was like, just kidding. No, I'm not going to do it. So then they ended up getting George Abbott involved. So Hal Prince has a funny story in his book about pitching it to George Abbott. We had scheduled a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum for the fall of 1961, but Jerry Robbins decided the material wasn't ready, and that he wasn't going to wait for it to be ready, which left us without a director. Meanwhile, I arranged for George Abbott to hear Forum in his office, Gelbart and Chevalov to read their book aloud, and Sondheim to play the score. Much of that material depended on physical activity, so it did not seem that funny, and they were nervous, and it was very long. We started at 11 in the morning. At about 1 o'clock, they were still early in the second act when Abbott rose, announced a luncheon appointment, thanked everyone, and left. That happened on a Friday. It was in the spring, and Abbott had begun spending his weekends in the Catskills, where he has a home. Later in the day over the phone, he called the show Sophomoric. I told him he was mistaken, that he would live to regret that he hadn't done it. I asked whether I could send the script to him that day by special messenger, two and a half hours on the short line bus. Would he read it again as though he had never heard it before? And if on Monday he still said it was collegiate, that would be that. He didn't wait until Monday. He phoned me that Saturday morning to say, it's absolutely marvelous. I'll do
1: it. I do think that the one thing that even Sondheim sort of says, so I guess he was teaming up with Bert Chevlov and Larry Gelbart but they had been working on it for four years and Sondheim was still kind of like under the impression by the end of it that they had been working on like two different shows.
0: (laughs) Yeah that comes up a lot like the idea that the script and the book and the score are kind of existing on two different planes but I think that's kind of what makes it work like I think like I really like this score a lot I think it's a really you know hidden treasure and I think people sometimes discount it because it is part of such like such a farcical kind of silly show but it it's really a delight
1: yeah I guess I've always been kind of curious why it feels like Sondheim and Sondheim fans have disowned it <laughs> a little bit
0: I don't know I mean I think it's because maybe it's because it's not like angsty enough <laughs> yeah so he had already written Saturday Night, which was going to go to Broadway, but then I think the backer died or, (laughs) yeah, like, something like that. So this was his first score that he wrote the music and lyrics for that made it to Broadway. And in Sondheim & Company, his collaborators are talking about how, like, he and they both talk about how it's, like, it's really the work of someone who's, like, anxious to show everything he can do. And, like, he also was, like, trained by Oscar Hammerstein, who is very, like, songs should develop the character, they should develop the situation whereas these are more like what does he call it? Savor the moment songs, which is where Mm -hmm. they just let you stop for a minute. So an art isn't easy. He says they're meant to pinpoint moments of joy or delight or desire and they act as kind of a breather in between the the crazy pace of all of the gags. Because he had said, like, maybe it would be better without the songs, but, like, without the songs, it would just be, like, nonstop. You know, you wouldn't have a chance to catch your breath.
1: Yeah, it's funny because, like, also in his description of that, he, like, talks a lot about how he had been trained to write songs for two-dimensional characters. <laughs> and he's we <laughs> were just, like, characters with at least two dimensions, yeah. whereas, like, these are all, like, very flat stock types. But I, I think that that, what you just said, is, like, an interesting and very noteworthy point and I think maybe was sort of like the difference between why Little Me failed and Funny Thing was more successful is that like I think that Sondheim was really aware of and being careful of song placement. It's kind of front loaded it seems. I think that for like the last you know 20 to 30 minutes there are no songs because they just saw it as like impossible to stop because the farcical inertia was just like moving so quickly
0: mm-hmm. he also says which i really liked that farces are express trains and musicals are locals which, <laughs> <laughs> so for the main character of pseudolist the crafty slave they originally wanted phil silvers and he was like i don't want to do this this is like the same thing i do all the time
1: but he did eventually do it he
0: did and he was also in the movie um, alongside zero and apparently i think in hell prince he was like when he did it it wasn't a, he wasn't as good as zero but let's see. So apparently, none of the creative team wanted Zero, and Hal Prince really fought for him. So, this is from Sondheim and Company, and Zero didn't want to do it either. <laughs> so, Zero said, I read it and I didn't like it, so I turned it down. Then Hal Prince went to my wife and asked why I wouldn't do it, and she came to me and said, I heard you turned down Forum. And I said, oh, yes, I forgot to tell you. And she said, if you don't take it, I'm going to stab you in the balls. (laughs) 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 So Bert Shevalov said, We weren't completely satisfied with Zero. I don't think any of us were. Anybody can be as difficult as he likes, commensurate with his talent. Larry Gelbart says, Zero was a giant. He was a giant talent and a giant pain in the ass, but there are very few leading men, and leading men in the conventional sense are immediately snatched up for pictures. The theater keeps getting robbed of that kind of guy, but Zero had no major movie career, so he could afford to, re- to return to the theater, which, ouch. Yes.
1: <laughs> I love this period of broadway where like there is this like new star class of stars but also like the stars of like yesteryear are still also like available and like looking to do work Mm -hmm. Uh, i think it's just like a funny juxtaposition of like old and new
0: yeah totally so they ended up replacing they had a lot of trouble with the ingenue couple um, which were originally played by karen black and pat fox and they got replaced and Hal Prince wanted Barbara Harris and Joel Grey to replace them, but nobody wanted that, which was good foresight by Hal Prince. But mm-hmm. the the actress who ended up playing Philia is named Preshy Marker, which seems like a fake, like, 60s Broadway ingenue name. Uh-huh. I've, never, I've never bought that name for a minute.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that it was, like, the Karen Black yeah. who ended up being, like, a much bigger star than... <laughs> <laughs>
0: So they had a tough time out of town, especially with the opening number, which is like a story that I've heard more times than many stories about my actual family, <laughs> like, even multiple books I was reading and not new books were like, this is one of the oldest stories in the theater. I do have a recording of him doing like a lyrics and lyricists uh, at the 92nd street Y of him telling the story, which was the first time I ever heard it. So I might just cut that in and have him actually tell it if it works.
2: We opened out of town and it was it was a disaster. Critics hated it, and the audiences hated it. And it was baffling, because usually when you, when you have a show in trouble, you can sense, as you stand in the back of the house, what's wrong and why it's not working. We were totally uh, baffled. And even George Abbott, who had been connected with more farces than any, anybody, said, I don't know what to do, he said to Howe. I, I like it. They don't like it. I don't know what to do. He said, you've got to call in George Abbott. Um... <laughs> Well, of course, the trouble was up front. We had an opening, a song called Love is in the Air, which I'll play in a second, which is a perfectly charming song, which preceded a not charming evening. The idea of the evening was that it was low comedy, that it was a celebration of 2,000 years of burlesque comedy, of farce situational comedy. And what you were led to believe at the beginning was that it would have, oh, I don't know, the grittiness of the Fantastics or something. It was so delicate and charming. And um, about a a month before uh, rehearsals began, Bert and Larry and I smelled it coming. And so we decided on another song, uh, which I'll also play you, which essentially told the audience what the evening was about. However, George didn't like it didn't like the second one. So we stuck with the first one, which was originally sung by uh, David Burns. Then it was sung by Zero. And finally, when we got to Washington, we called in somebody, namely Jerry Robbins, whose first comment was, everything is fine. Please change the opening show. You got to tell the audience what the evening is about. That's what led to comedy tonight. Um, I can remember matinee in Washington. that We played 50 people. That's how bad, how disastrous the show was. We put the new opening in, the first preview in New York, and there was cheers and laughter throughout the entire evening of the same lines that, that the audiences had been silent at four days earlier in, in Washington. And that's the difference an opening can make. Of course, also, it's an advantage when you have one stage by Jerry Robbins that helps. But at least it told the audience what it was about. So let me start, uh, well, let me just play the two openings of of uh, Address the audience. Love is in the air. Quite clearly, people everywhere. Act queerly. Some are hasty, some are halting, some are simply some are salting. Love is going around. Anyone exposed can catch it. Keep your window closed. And latch it. Leave your house and lose your reason. This is the contagious season, love. Is going around As you can see, that was fine, but did not prepare you for Davy Burns coming out and doing the kind of things that Davy Burns did. Um, this was what I wanted to replace it with. A little more difficult to play and sing. oh, for those of you who have not had the pleasure of hearing my voice before, I tend to sing very loud, usually off pitch, and always write in keys that are just out of my range, so you hear them... (laughs) Uh, You'll hear a lot of dropping of octaves All evening long Gods of the theater Smile on us You who sit out there Stern in judgment Smile on us Think not about deep concerns Think not about dark dilemmas We offer you rights and revels Bless our play And smile Forget war Forget woe, forget matters weighty and great, allow matters weighty to wait for a while for this moment, this brief time. Frown on reason, smile
1: on rhyme. I love that story. One of my favorite things about Jerome Robbins coming in is that coming back to him naming names at like a hoak when years later he ran into zero mostel on the rehearsal set of the 1962 musical a funny thing happened on the way to the forum the blacklisted comic greeted him in front of the rest of the cast by saying hi loose lips <laughs> <laughs> jerry's laughter in response though it was taken as a purposeful icebreaker could have been the result of shock or even guilt Probably was a combination of all three.
0: Well, it is funny because both Zero Mostel and Jack Guilford, who was also in the show, had had their careers derailed by McCarthyism. And Jack Guilford's wife, Madeline Lee, was actually specifically one of the names that Jerome Robbins named. And when Hal Prince was talking about bringing him in, Zero and Jack Guilford and Madeline were all kind of like, uh, what should we do? but they were like, we've already been blacklisted, like, we're not going to blacklist ourselves again by, like, putting up a fuss about this. So it really mm. was kind of like a slap in the face to bring, bring old Jerry back around there. So I'm glad that yeah. Zero called him out on it. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a classic case of in the reviews, the score was either panned or ignored, um, and then when it was revived in the 70s, everyone was like, oh, you know, that classic Sondheim sound.
1: Well, I think that it's even amazing how much scholarship, like Sondheim scholarship, between the two of us we have, and I feel like in even so many like expressly like Sondheim books, there's little to no information about form sometimes.
0: Yeah. Ethan Morton gives it its due, which I appreciate.
1: Really, in On Sondheim or no? No, in um, the 60s In book? his
0: '60s book, uh, "Open a New Window."
1: In his Sondheim book, it has two pages.
0: Really, I mean, I think there's like not as much to unpack in it in terms of like subtext and sort of musical invention. But mm-hmm. Howard Taubman in the Times said George Abbott, who has been around a long time, but surely staged nothing for the forum mob, has forgotten nothing and remembered everything. He's used mixed identities, swinging doors, kicks in the posterior, double takes, and all the rest of the familiar paraphernalia with the merciless disingenuousness of a man who knows you will be defenseless.
1: I mean, I think that since the ni- early 1960s, there's been a lot of discussion about high mm-hmm. culture versus low culture. And, like, I think that anyone who kind of dismisses this show really misses that point. But, like, kind of just, like, reinforcing your point, in the Elaine Stritch biography that just came out, Ooh. Um, she was in attendance at this Tony ceremony because she was playing the matinee Martha to Uda Hagen. Sondheim was not even nominated for the score, and his colleagues forgot to thank him at the ceremony, which sent him into a dark funk. Steve was so unhappy he wanted to kill himself, Flora Roberts said. Oh. Um, yeah. Well
0: it's funny because in the Hal Prince book, the way that he did this book was that so he originally wrote a memoir in the 70s and then obviously had like a huge long career after that so what he did was he kind of updated it and included the original chapters and then at the end of the chapter he did whatever reflections on it and so this was his, in sort of response to that, this is his reflection on the Funny Thing Happened chapter. Though a funny thing happened on the way to the forum was awarded the Tony for the best musical of the year, its composer was not even nominated. The book writers, the director, and the producers were, and won. All of us neglected to acknowledge Steve Sondheim's contribution as its composer. After 57 years, I'm still guilty as hell. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought, I liked what Ethan Morton had to say about why this score is so underrated. So this Mm -hmm. is from um, Open a New Window. So the show is a classic, but not the typical Broadway classic revived because people love the songs. Folks still don't get forum score because they don't expect anything melodious in a farce, and what people don't expect, they generally manage not to hear. This is the most difficult of the Sondheim scores then because it's too easy to take for granted. One knows that Pacific overtures or Into the Woods demands concentration. They are not difficult because one aspires to comprehend them. But when did anyone have to comprehend burlesque?
1: Oh, that's a really interesting kind of take on it.
0: Because I think, like, and Sondheim is very critical of himself, like, in his book of, of him, like, Trying to be too clever, especially Mm -hmm. he calls out Pretty Little Picture a lot, which was written when they were still trying to get Phil Silver's and he says it's clever but not funny because there's so much like alliteration.
2: Night descends and the moons that glow, Your arms entwine, you steal below And far behind at the edge of day The bung of the bell of the buoy in the bay And the boy and the bride and the boat are away It's a pretty little picture to share As a little boat sails to sea Take your little trip free as air Have a little freedom on me
0: but I think it's it's fun, you know? It's like, he's very hard on himself.
1: No, I was actually surprised at how like dismissive he was of his own work and lyrics in it. I mean, especially because I think that besides Comedy Tonight, which is an amazing opening number and probably the biggest recognizable song from the show. <laughs>
2: Something familiar, something peculiar, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. Something appealing, something appalling, something for everyone, a comedy tonight.
1: Like I think that Everybody Ought to Have a Maid and That Dirty Old Man or like, especially Everybody Ought to Have a Maid. I just like feel like the lyrics are so clever Mm -hmm. and so fun.
2: Oh, oh, wouldn't she be delicious tidying up the dishes neat as a pin? Oh, oh, wouldn't she be delightful sweeping out, sleeping in? Everybody ought to have a maid, ought to have a maid. someone who you hire when you're short sure of help to offer you the sort of help you never get from a spouse. <coughs> Fluttering up the stairway, shuttering up the windows, cluttering up the bedroom, buttering up the master, buttering all around the house.
0: Yeah, and I also, I love that dirty old man because I love the way, and he's very hard on the lyric for that too, but I love the way that the music, like he has the contrast in the music and like the vocal register of her in these like very high pitched wailings and then like going down into her lower register to be like, that dirty old man.
2: That dirty old man, Where can he be Profaning our vows for all to see Complaining how he's misunderstood Abusing me if he only would have known Sweet love, hide? You woman, you worm, you villain Confess that-
0: So something I was thinking about like after our discussion of um Ula and the producers and kind of like the role of the ingenue the character of Philia I think is maybe the closest to that that archetype in here like but even Philia has two like very funny songs and I especially love Battle Show Him
2: When I kiss him I'll be kissing you so I'll kiss him morning and night Battle Show Him
0: Like, that's what I really like about this show, is even though the songs don't really advance the plot or the character, they are all these really fun showcases for character actors and for, like, comic tour de force. It made me think, do high schools still do this show, or is it too old-fashioned? Because I would think this would be a great show for high schools.
1: I feel like growing up, a couple of the schools in my vicinity, I think, had been doing it. I don't know. I feel like it's really... I think that when I was first getting into theater, like it wasn't that long after the revival with Nathan Lane. Mm -hmm. But I really think since then... It's really gotten buried under so many things.
0: Okay, so I found in Art Isn't Easy, there was like a nice little summary of how the score was received in the original production versus the 70s production. The show's appeal, far from dating, has increased with time, and the revival 10 years after the original production was universally praised. It is instructive to note the contrast between the critical opinions in the two sets of reviews. Although the piece had been generally well received in 1962, receiving six Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Sondheim's contribution was either totally ignored, deprecated, or cursely dismissed. Unobtrusive, generally pleasant, pleasing. I don't think I'd give you much for the music by Stephen Sondheim, but the lyrics, also by him, aren't bad. Stephen Sondheim's score is less than inspired, and Stephen Sondheim's music would have been second-rate even in 1940 were typical responses. Despite the fact that the musical was given the Tony Award as Best Musical in 1962, Sondheim was never mentioned. His contribution to the show's success was disregarded, discounted, and negated. The revival, however, was treated as a Sondheim triumph. Brilliant music and lyrics by Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim's melodious score is one of the season's greatest joys. This early score by the talented Mr. Sondheim is both humorous and charming. Sondheim's music is superb, technically fresh, filled with melody, accurate in satire, and most of all, theatrically conceived. Sondheim's altered critical status can even be perceived in the reviewers' list of credits. In 1962, they had seen the musical as a piece by Chevalov, Gelbart, and Sondheim. In 1972, it had become Sondheim, Chevalov, and Gelbart. Sondheim's creative activity in the intervening years had established him as the creative musical talent in Broadway theater.
1: Yeah, that is so insane to me. I mean, <laughs> even seeing one of the reviews from 1972, like, it starts off being, like, for the past 10 years, like, there has been only one musical I've been, like, ever thinking about. And it's, like... Really? Yeah. (laughs) Like,
0: did you say that at the time, or were you just thinking Mm. it?
1: Yeah, I mean, Shevlov's really, you know, been forgotten to time in a way. He revised the No-No-No-Net book. I guess he had some directing credits and directed the 72 revival but you know it's funny to see who ended up being the person who pretty much like changed the face of theater
0: yeah so actually a funny footnote that um, Sondheim mentions in his book is that Jerome Robbins kind of invented the concept of doing like a reading slash workshop to develop a musical which had never Mm -hmm. been done before Um, And that it ended up really helping them fix problems quickly that it would have like wasted time in rehearsal to fix. Which, you know, was funny for a musical that he didn't even end up directing. He ended up innovating the whole process of developing a musical in this way.
1: Yeah, this was like during the period when he was being extremely flaky with them, where he (laughs) was like, well, like, why don't we just do a reading of it?
0: And they were Um, like, what?! (laughs) so apparently so none of them wanted zero and apparently um they also had trouble with him like during the run so sondheim said as far as zero was concerned he was wonderful on the road but the minute he got to new york and became a star from the reviews he would begin doing things like announcing the results of the heavyweight fight from the stage wish everyone a happy halloween imitate the other actors. (laughs) He did that in Fiddler, too, which was even less seemly. At least Forum seemed to be this loose farce so that, obnoxious as the ad-libbing was, the audience could take it. But when you do it on a piece like Fiddler, it really wrecks it. And Zero said, in his defense, there's a kind of silliness in the theater about what one contributes to a show. The producer obviously contributes the money, the book writer the book, the composer the music, the lyricist the lyrics, but the actor contributes nothing at all? The theory that it's strong material. I'm not a modest fellow about these things. I contribute a great deal. And they always manage to hang you for having an interpretation. Why must it be dull as shit? I don't think theater should be like that. Isn't that where your imagination should flower? But the producer, the director, the authors all go on their vacations and they come back well tanned and I'm pale from playing the show and they say, it's altered a great deal since opening night. But I'm not an actor who can do it in a monotone all the time. Suppose you have a bellyache. Can't you use it when you're on the stage? Don't you use what you have? Guys who call it shtick give me a pain in the ass. If you have the premise that a guy wants to be free, no matter what crazy things you do on the stage, as long as you feel that it's keeping with that premise, it should be accepted by the audience.
1: Oh my god. Yeah, so he really was a he was really a character. Um, well, I think that thinking of, like, three shows that we've talked a lot about, or, you know, the next one that we're going to talk about, Foxy, which had Burt Larr. Thinking of, like, Burt Larr's Zero Mustel, and, you know, we're going to talk about Sid next, there are three comics who had these attitudes of, like, well, what do you mean, like, I'm not the person who's, like, in charge? Like, right. people are coming to see me. Like, I am an author of the show.
0: I think Sid Caesar is the worst out of all of them <laughs> by yeah. far, which we'll get to, <laughs> although it seemed he was struggling with some real demons. So this actually did receive a film adaptation pretty soon after the film was made in 1966. It was directed by Richard Lester, who made A Hard Day's Night. It had Buster Keaton in his last film role. Zero Mostel and Jack Guilford both reprised their roles. But it cut most of the music, and the reviews were okay. I think it's generally been forgotten like, I never really think about it in terms of thinking of, like, Sondheim film adaptations. What do you think they should have performed for their Tony number?
1: Well, you know, I know that we both probably would agree that it should be comedy tonight. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I want to choose, like, a deep cut to just be contrarian. Okay. So I'm here for um, that. I think that they should do Pretty Little Picture.
0: Okay. I think that's a good choice. Oh,
2: All yeah. Problems will cease, and your little blessings will flow, and your little family increase, pretty little picture, no, no, pretty little masterpiece, pretty little
0: picture. I gotta say, I know it's the basic bitch choice, but it's gotta be comedy tonight.
1: I mean, it is. It's like, it's so magnificent, especially like with a performer like Zero.
0: Did he ever perform it on the Tonys in a later year? Because you know how they would sometimes. I feel like he must have. Yes, he did it on the 1971 Tonys, but it was just him doing it. It wasn't like the full company. It was a one man comedy tonight. Cornizens and eunuchs,
2: funerals and chases,
0: phantoms and basses,
2: hinderers, philanderers, cupidity, timidity, mistakes fate, rhymes, tumblers, grumblers, bumblers, fumblers, no royal curse, no Trojan horse.
0: So our next and last show of the episode um, was the other Ethan. It's funny. Ethan Morden calls these the two funniest shows of the sixties. So it's funny that they're both here together and that would be little me.
1: So little me opened on November 17th, 1962 and closed on june 29th 1963 after 257 performances and it was based on the novel little me the intimate memoirs of that great star of stage screen and television by patrick dennis it featured a book by neil simon music by cy coleman lyrics by carolyn lee directed by cy fewer and bob fossey little me is the story of belle poitrine a glamorous and wealthy celebrity living in Southampton. Author Patrick Dennis has been hired to straight her autobiography. Poitrine spins a fantastical yarn about Belle Schlumpert, a girl from the wrong side of the tracks who falls for Noble Eggleston, the richest kid in Venezuela, Illinois. Unfortunately, Noble's mother refuses to entertain the notion of her son marrying someone so thoroughly lacking in wealth, culture, and social position. So Bell goes on a quest to achieve those things, and in the process becoming the lover of an octogenarian banker, a myopic soldier, a French vaudeville star, and a sickly European prince. Much to Belle's distress, all these men have a funny habit of dying mysteriously.
0: We'll get it out of the way first. Belle Poitrine is French for nice rack, basically.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) So something I didn't realize is that they acquired... So Patrick Dennis obviously also wrote the book um, that, you know, Auntie Mame and Mame were based on. And Ernie Martin and Cy Fewer um, acquired the book a year before it was even published.
1: That's amazing. I guess at this point, Anti-Mame had been a play on Broadway, but the musical Mame was still a few years out.
0: Yeah, so they were working on it for a long time before it even came out.
1: And it was funny because I have this book That is about, like, the genesis of Auntie Mame, the amazing history of the world's favorite madcap aunt, But Darling, I'm Your Auntie Mame by (laughs) Richard Taylor Jordan. And he actually makes a really interesting point about Mame in that, like, the actual novel, which I haven't read, feels kind of like little vignettes. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it posed kind of a problem translating it to stage because, you know, everyone who read the novel was like, oh, he has such a flair for dialogue. Like, it's not going to be... A problem for him to like translate it into the stage. But, you know, I think that there were some problems because kind of having to put it into a mold, you know, like a narrative arc form was a little bit of a difficulty. Yeah,
0: I think the, um, apparently the book, it's very photo heavy and they use the photos to sort of ironically illustrate like whatever she's saying. So they were trying to kind of crack that structure and figure out how to translate that onto the stage. And originally. They talked about Patrick Dennis doing the book that fell through, and they went to Neil Simon, um, who had never written a musical book before. And originally, Cy Coleman and Carolyn Lee turned it down because they had had a bad experience doing Wildcat, um, but they ended up coming back to it after the project they were going to do fell through.
1: You know, I think I best know Cy Coleman as writing the Sweet Charity score, but like I didn't realize that he and Carolyn Lee were like, you know, writing a lot of Sinatra's songs and were just like two very popular songwriters of the period.
0: But working on this show destroyed their partnership, which we'll get to. Some of the stories, this, the behind the scenes of this show has some of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Like everybody was on one in this process
1: it's also kind of funny because I feel like poor Neil Simon was kind of left to like pick up the pieces of everything (laughs) I
0: feel like that's always the job of the book writer (laughs) they get they have to take a lot of shit so it was Neil Simon's idea because there were a lot of alumni of your show of shows working this season um, because Larry Gelbart came from there Bob Fosse had been a dancer on there so he knew Sid Caesar that way um, and that's how Neil Simon also knew Sid Caesar, and that's how he got him involved. And it was also his idea to make all the husbands played by one man. And that's always what, like, surprises me about this show, is that for a long time I just, like, knew the name, knew it was this kind of star vehicle for, like, a male character actor. And when I saw, I saw the Encores production, I was like, wait, Little Me... The little me in question is a woman. (laughs) Like, it's not about, and even the cover of the cast album is like a Sid Caesar caricature wearing a bunch of hats. Yeah. So it's like, it really does shift the focus from Belle to whoever's playing the male lead.
1: There is like this interesting also thing where like Belle is like in the present as like an older woman, but also like talking about her in your, her youth. And she was like played by two different actresses.
0: Virginia Martin, who was in How to Succeed the year before as Hetty mm-hmm. LaRue, and old Belle was played by Nancy Andrews. It actually was originally supposed to be the season earlier but fewer and Martin had had the like they didn't want it to want to be competing against themselves with how to succeed so they pushed it to the following season so S- since Caesar was extremely difficult Like, I think even more difficult than Zero. He was afraid to do it because he, like, loved to improvise and was not, like, a very precise performer. And in musicals, you know, you have to be very precise because people's cues and, like, a lot of the tech stuff is depending on you, you know, knowing where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to say at what time. So he said, right when he started, so this is from Cy Fewer's book. I'm not a dancer, Caesar declared, and I do not intend to become one. He was also not a singer, which was apparent, and he declared that he would not sing more than three songs. I have an aversion to lyrics this was not good news for Carolyn Lee. So <laughs> Fossey staged a lot of the dances. So he was like, there was there was uh, like numbers where he was in a wheelchair and like where he was in bed and everyone would just like <laughs> dance around him. Everyone hated each other on the creative team. It was a really tough development process. Like they staged, they said this, they staged the opening number like 25 different ways.
1: Going on the Sid being difficult, this is a passage from uh, Neil Simon's memoir where, you know, at one point in the book, Bell and Noble meet years later aboard the Titanic while both are strolling the deck. Belle, still in love with Noble, bursts out pleadingly, "'Oh, Noble, isn't there some way we can keep on seeing each other?' Noble answers, "'What do you want to do, sneak around back alleys, checking into cheap hotels, lying to our friends and family?' She says, no, of course not. He answers, well, it was just a suggestion. It was one of the biggest laughs of the night. At one performance in Philadelphia, after Bell said, of course not, Sid replied, well, it's just a situation. No laugh, obviously. When I went backstage to see Sid, he asked me why that line didn't go get a laugh tonight. I told him, you didn't say it was just a suggestion. You said it was just a situation. Sid looked at me bewildered and said, what's the difference? (laughs) It didn't seem to be wise to correct Sid because he looked as though he was about to get one of his wolfman headaches. I always followed the dictum. Let sleeping large angry comedians lie. As I left, Cy, Fuhrer entered the dressing room, and I heard him say, Sid, I just had a couple of notes for you. Nothing big. Cy didn't know how big nothing big could be. I thought it was a good show tonight, Sid. Cy began diplomatically. Just a little slow. Sid looked up at him through his dressing mirror. The red flag had just been waved in front of his horns. <laughs> Sid rarely attacks with anger. Sid just sarcastics you to death. I could hear him through the door. He was very polite. A little slow? Really? You mean a little slow or like turtle slow? Or was it really like a glacier slow? If you want, I could speed it up a little. I could make it so fast the audience doesn't even have to come in. They could just go to the box office, buy their tickets, and go home. Show me how slow it was, Sai. I'm young. I could sit here. I'm 60, 70. I'm in no hurry.
0: Wow. Well, in in Cy Fewer's version of that story, it ends with Sid Caesar ripping the sink out of the wall and throwing it out the window. (laughs) Because like, I mean, I think, and the, you know, the backstory to all of this is that he was really struggling with um, alcoholism and and drug addiction during this time. Um, Mm -hmm. There were a lot of you know reports from different books that he would I mean as you mentioned he would like cough during punchlines and like screw it up maybe not on purpose but you know that was sort of the he was very insecure there was an actor Sven Swenson who had a show-stopping dance number called I've Got Your Number
2: we'll break those rules a lot we'll be damned fools a lot but then why should we not how could we not come by no end? I've got your number and I've got the glow you've got. I've got your number and baby, you know, you've
0: got mine and he was so insecure he was like they're all coming to see him like they don't want they don't care about me at all and the box office was really up and down throughout the whole show and kind of the nail in the coffin was that someone gave him like an extra strong tranquilizer before a show and he ended up passing out on the stage and that ended up they never were able to recover from that but a couple of things about this score so there are two songs in particular which are Be A Performer and Dimples. And when I heard them, I was like, oh, this is like a Gypsy parody. But actually Mm -hmm. they were written for Gypsy when Coleman and Lee, like David Merrick had them sort of take a pass at writing the songs for it. So they were just like repurposed trunk songs that were literally originally supposed to be in Gypsy.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah.
0: Dimples especially is very, very Baby June.
1: Oh, them doggone devils, if I ever go to the pen, oh, 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 oh,
0: they see it again. Also the song Here's To Us was one of Judy Garland's favorite songs and it was played at her funeral. Oh.
1: i think that it's interesting in this discussion of forums being like a crowning example of like a great opening number Mm -hmm. because i do think that the way that this one the orchestra for this show is amazing yes Um, yeah but two, like the first few numbers especially the song the opening number the truth is amazing
2: the truth the truth an odyssey entitled little me has told you From passage through the mail, but nonetheless on sale throughout the land and printed by demand in Esperanto, Japanese, and Braille.
0: Yes. I
1: love it. <laughs> I
0: love it, and I think the overture also is especially brassy and exciting. Cy Coleman mm-hmm. always writes like very brassy, fun scores. So I thought the Ethan Morden Open a New Window book had like an interesting take on the score. So there's a lot of dancing in it, which makes sense because it's a Fosse show. Little Me is a musical comedy without the slightest interest in respecting the post-Oklahoma trend toward rationalization. The score does not inhabit the story as, say, Bye Bye Birdie's score does. Little Me's score decorates the story, punctuates it, teases it, and even photographs it, like the illustrations in Dennis's novel. What the score does not do is explain the story, as Birdie's an English teacher explains Cheetah Rivera's character. Little Me can't even be said to have a gap, as Birdie does in failing to put Albert into context musically. Little me has no gaps because little me has no connections. Wildcat has character and situation songs. Little me has spoofs of character and situation songs. That's something that also comes up in the Cy Coleman book where they were talking about how, you know, the songs are like these sort of satirical spoofs, but they didn't want them to seem like mocking or mean-spirited, like they wanted them to have a real heart. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think they accomplished that.
1: Well, and I think that with trying to figure out why it didn't go as well as it could, Neil Simon kind of had like a similar sort of sentiment, though I think he maybe thought that like it wasn't sincere enough. Little Me had style trouble. We were both farcical and satirical at the same time. We told the audience that Noble and Belle really loved each other, but neither the writers nor actors nor directors really believed it. We were asking the audience to accept what we ourselves were making fun of. It was a good joke, but still a joke, and it's hard to maintain a joke for two and a quarter hours, no matter how well it's told. We did have our admirers because they were willing to accept us on our own terms, but those who like to believe in and care for the characters they were watching felt cheated.
0: Yeah, that may, I mean, that was kind of how I felt when um, I saw the Encores production. I was like, this uh-huh. is, you know, it's like a lot of fun. It has like a lot of fun numbers, a lot of fun set pieces, but it's kind of like... I don't know. What's the what's the point?
1: Yeah. No, it's true. You know, I think that out of context I'm like that's not true. Like I don't need to care about a character. But I'm like actually yeah. I think I kind of do.
0: But I think it's like a really fun listen on the album. It was really fun to see all of like the the choreography, although it wasn't, you know, the Fosse choreography, but and obviously it's fun to see. And I think that is why it has had so much life is that it's like a very exciting Prospect for, like, a character actor leading man to get to play all of these different roles.
1: How was Christian doing it?
0: He was good. You know, I think yeah. that's, like, kind of his sweet spot.
1: I think that all of the revival reviews, like, you know, another way of comparing it to Forum where like I think the 90s reviews of both of the revivals of the show were like yeah this show has its problems but isn't it fun
0: (laughs) so another like interesting comparison to Forum is that so Forum has only one set and nobody has any costume changes besides um, the brief drag interlude but this show does not repeat a single set and Sid Caesar alone had 48 costume changes
1: oh my god (laughs)
0: So, you know, two different approaches to doing... I guess this is a, isn't really a farce, but it is yeah. farcical.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's kind of what... Is it a farce? Is it a satire? Is kind of like what... Yeah, I mean if you have someone making that many costume changes it's i would classify it as farce when i was like looking for through the new york times archive of it they had this really fun photo spread of like the many lives of four broadway performers and Mm -hmm. like they kind of like did a little um photo profile on the other performers that season who were playing like multiple roles it's like a funny thing to like think about I mean, I think that Little Shop is, like, a show that I always, like, think about where, you know, there's, like, one character actor playing, like, a bunch of characters throughout it. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that's what Christian
0: Borrell's doing right now. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, do we want to... Oh, we didn't talk about about Carolyn Lee trying to arrest Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) I think maybe the Cy Coleman book has the best summary. So there was one number, the Act 1 finale, that she was very attached to. And so Cy Fewer called a meeting and was like, I'm cutting the number. From most accounts, Lee heard Fewer's announcement and promptly made one of her own. She would not allow the number to be cut, insisting that her dramatist Guild contract ensured that changes could be made to her material only with her consent. She and Fewer argued, and finally she stormed out of the theater. Lee returned in short order with a police officer, some say a traffic cop, and demanded that he arrest Fewer, Simon, and Fossey for their complicity in violating her contractual rights. The situation was eventually diffused. Fewer remembered the cop as saying, lady, I don't know what you're talking about, before leaving. Others remember him asking for a couple of passes to come see the show. Further variations on the tale extend to its timing. Some remember Lee getting the policeman after arriving at the theater and learning some lyrics had been changed. Others remember (laughs) it happening while the show was in performance and culminating with the officer asking if he might be able to stay to see the second act of the show. There is one consistent detail in the accounts of Lee's attempts to find justice as Little Me evolved. She never demanded that Coleman be arrested.
1: Oh my god. <laughs> I can't take it. It's I too know. much. I know.
0: So they and they had sort of a tough relationship even before that and apparently they had alternating billing written into their contracts for little me and where sometimes her name would be first and sometimes his would be first.
1: Oh, seriously? Yeah. So I guess that they already had started having their beef.
0: Yeah, I think that was um, a feature of their relationship and not a bug. It worked for them. Until it didn't.
1: It's cool that she, you know, was one of the few women on Broadway at the time.
0: Yeah. And it's like, it's hard to tell what these descriptions of her as being this, like, very chaotic, kind of emotional, dramatic woman are just, you know, sexism of being like, this dame can't handle the heat, you know. (laughs) But I think bringing a cop in is uh hard to (laughs) is hard to argue with as an anecdote of being a little over the top
1: i feel like in previous shows where there had been a female lyricist they were like or like a female like a woman as part of like the production team Mm -hmm. um they were like well we need a woman but maybe not too many women it is like this seems like the type of show that they were probably like yeah a woman would be good
0: um okay do we want to talk about what we think they should have performed.
1: I kind of love the number here's to us towards mm-hmm. the end.
0: And here's to us for nothing that
1: I mean it kind of gives away the like whole thing of the show <laughs> where you know she was like told her whole life that she couldn't be with this person because he was too noble for her but then now he's like kind of like the drunken bum
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but I love it <laughs> yeah
0: no I think that's a good choice my pick would be the act one number deep down inside you get Sid Caesar in there you get Belle you get like a Fosse production number
2: and even a worst of varmints you'll find a good deed down under the outer garments Of malice and greed That little gold streak is shining Believe it or not That ain't you, don't mind mining There yeah, you hit, hit rock bottom Strip down, Need a real tip down Deep down, Deep down inside deep down deep down inside slip down zip down take a little trip down go down Low down Need a good joe down under, under your hide on that show, we'll get a real good trip and dip down and dip down in, dip down in dip down inside.
0: that would be my pick okay should that i think that's i think that's I think it that that's
1: it for these two
0: i agree i don't think we need to i don't think we need to pat it out
1: these are two like very cool pickings, though.
0: Yeah, I think this is like it's too bad that oh, so and little me. The only um, Tony it took home was for Bob Fosse's choreography.
1: Well, it's also funny because I think that this was really the genesis of Bob Fosse and Neil Simon's close friendship. Then Gwen came in and was like helping with it. And then she and Joan, I believe, Neil Simon's first wife became really good friends.
0: As detailed in Fosse-Verdon.
1: Yes. There's not even a whisper of little me in Fosse-Verdon.
0: Wow. It's too little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, so next week, we're going to talk about Oliver and Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. We're going to travel who's across the Virginia pond. of Virginia Woolf. Yes, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, and a little Odds and Ends. It's funny, like, how going from one really um, male-dominated year to another, from the producers to this, who said men don't have fun things to do on Broadway? No one.
1: (laughs) Well, it's kind of crazy, too, because Forum won six Tonys, Virginia Wolf won five, Oliver won three, and then there was like a bunch of smatterings of shows that just won one. Yeah.
0: Okay, so that'll all be next time. In the meantime, you can rate and review us on, I guess, I just stopped saying iTunes. It's called Apple Podcasts now. (laughs) Um, You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at My Little Tonys. You can email us at podcast at gmail.com. And that's it.
1: Sounds good. All right. See, see you, next, you time. next week. Bye. Bye.